The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I have long since determined not to let an opportunity pass for learning something, simply because I must expose my ignorance in so doing. A friend recorded these words spoken by James A. Garfield as he made his way to commence his studies at Williams College in 1854, and they were certainly words that he lived his life by for the next few decades. So too, in this episode, do we venture into a portion of U.S. presidential history that we haven't explored to date, but in which there is much to learn. Thankfully, we have a learned guide to help us along the way. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Recently, I had the pleasure of talking with historian and, as I learned in the interview, listener of the podcast, C.W. Goodyear, who is the author of a new book coming out entitled President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier. While I knew some about Garfield prior to reading this book, as I had read Alan Peskin's biography of him back in the day as part of my Presidential Reads project prior to beginning this podcast, I have to say that I've come away with a newfound fascination with the politics of the Reconstruction Era and the Gilded Age, and a better understanding of Garfield's role in this period in American politics. Just a little about our guest today. C.W. Goodyear is an author and historian based in Washington, D.C., He was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and grew up abroad before graduating from Yale University. I cannot thank Charlie enough for sharing his time and knowledge in this interview, and I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of his book, President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier, when it hits the book stands on July 4th, 2023. I'd also like to send special thanks to Tiani Niles, Angela Baghetta, and Rebecca Rosenberg for all their efforts in setting up this interview. Without further ado, let's turn to our discussion about Garfield. My guest today is C.W. Goodyear, and he is the author of the new book coming out on Independence Day, Easy Day to Remember, July 4th. The book is President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier. Charlie, thank you so much for being here. Jerry, the, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. We are so glad to have you here. Our listeners know we don't get to this part of presidential history too often on presidencies since (laughs) we're still in the Madison presidency, but this will be a nice break and talking about just a fascinating president, fascinating political figure, and to talk about the great work that you've done with this book. I cannot encourage folks enough to read it. There is so much and Charlie, we were talking beforehand that there are so many directions you can go with Garfield, that there's so much that he touches upon in his life. And, you know, that's one of the things about preparing for an interview. The possibilities are there, but I think that this will give our listeners a taste of the diversity and range of topics that come up when you talk about Garfield. So I'm very excited to have this conversation. Oh, me too. And yes, that was the limitation I found with this book. It's he Garfield's life. It's easy for us to think of him as simply being the president, but really the entire arc and where it began, you you have a span of 50 years in which this man led what I consider to be one of the most impressive rises to political power and indeed political odysseys in American history. 
To quote another president of the same age about Garfield, this is Rutherford Hayes speaking. The truth is no man ever started so low who accomplished so much in all of our history, not Abraham Lincoln or Benjamin Franklin, even. And that's one president describing another. And yeah. as you know, and as your listeners know, presidents don't often lavish praise like that on one another, unless they <laughs> really deserve it. Uh, yeah, no, Garfield, he was a, an intrepid general during the Civil War. He was the last president born in a log cabin. He was a uh, Raised by a single mother, he led an almost 20-year career in Congress in a time where that was almost unheard of. And he witnessed over that time the evolution of America from the Civil War to the Gilded Age. He was a Supreme Court attorney as well. He wrote an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem. It's just an amazing narrative. And he was such a wonderful thinker as well. We'll go more into that detail later. But the fact that you have an arc like that, that ends in an untimely assassination after this incredible American makes it to the presidency. There's just, there's, there's a tremendous amount of significance. I'd argue poetry in the arc of his life and great tragedy as well. And so, yes, the limitation is not what to write about, but what not to write about. I trimmed this manuscript down to uh, about 500 pages or so of prose. And that was, uh, that was hard work. Uh, and uh, so no, I, I, I'm really glad you appreciate the final product. It was a wonderful experience to be able to write about such a man. Absolutely. And this kind of gets to what was my first question Because, you know, while Garfield has been getting a bit more attention from historians in the last couple of decades, still to the general public, he falls into that grouping of the indistinguishable bearded presidents of the late 19th Mm. century, this time the Gilded Age presidents that folks struggle to remember. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what makes James A. Garfield a relevant historical subject for study in the 21st century? And on a personal note, what drew you to writing a biography of his life and career? Yeah. Well, what's nice is that those questions have the same answer. Those tie in very nicely. But before I get in, it is funny how these men who were all more often than not from the Midwest, who had very short presidential administrations and who insisted on cultivating distinguished facial hair, all ended up looking very similar <laughs> from a historical perspective. They all fade into each other. Uh, so that's, what's so delightful about that era is there's a lot of undiscovered gems in there, but the motivation for why I wrote about Garfield is, is tied to, I think his significance. And I think every historian and every biographer are always writing in some way about their times. But about five years ago, I was, I was already a writer in DC and I was very interested given current events of finding a period in American history where a lot of the conditions of our society were the same but as today's, but somebody on the national stage was leading in a different way. And, and the period I was drawn to, and that a lot of people are drawn to these days, is uh, Reconstruction in the Gilded Age. So post-Civil War and then post-post-Civil War. And as I studied that time, I kept on finding the same figure in, lurking in the background of pretty much every major event throughout those decades. And he was also somebody who everybody was saying vaguely nice things about, regardless of their own ideology. 
Uh, and sometimes that was in a passive aggressive way and in a very conditionalized way. Like, yeah, I guess he's fine. And, but that person was James Garfield. And the way in which he was discussed in these records and in these books that already existed, it was future president would be assassinated within the first year of his first term. And, and then they would move on. But I was obviously looking for a different characteristic. And so the, the, the deeper I dug into this man, this background character in these events, the more I realized that his life had a lot of untapped potential and a lot of great, rich historical significance. And so the book began to flesh itself out that way. And, and again, what we found was somebody who had led you know, an incredible American odyssey from the frontier to the White House and who had been a part of every major historical event in that period, who had fought in wars, who had won civil rights for Black Americans, and then who had been a witness to the backsliding of all of that progress. And so he seemed like a terribly timely figure to dive into, and he just became a very rich subject to write about. Absolutely. And I think you get to something there, because I know for me, reading this and studying that time period, you know, one of the things that you come back to time and again in your book is that Garfield's rise in politics coincided with changing times and circumstances in life in American politics, but then just life in general in mm. the U.S. And so as the last U.S. president to be born in a log cabin, what insight did your research provide as to how Garfield saw his role in the larger trends and changes of his time. Mm. I found somebody who went through a, who over the course of a very long political career had to burnish their inner fires and move from being a pioneering progressive of their time into somebody who was uh, willing to be much more pragmatic and uh, defer the change he wanted to see in America to a future generation. When you read the diaries of this young, you know, fatherless boy in rural Ohio, who's, who, who loves school, but who's not really given an opportunity to study, who's thrown a lot into manual labor jobs to support his, you know, single parent household in, on the frontier, you get somebody who is incredibly dynamic and incredibly ambitious. And you see that in his early writings. This is a passage he wrote in his diary after giving this oration in one of his first schools. And he wrote afterward, after apparently knocking it out of the park, despite a lot of anxiety, he wrote, the ice is broken. I am no longer a cringing scapegoat, but am resolved to make a mark in the world. I know without egotism that there is some of the slumbering thunder in my soul. And this was a teenager, you know, <laughs> who was the youngest in his family, who was not even, as a segue, not even the first James Garfield in his family. He was named after a sibling who had died in infancy before him. So, you know, you, you could, he was just coming from as hard scrabble a background as possible. And the way he then worked his way into a position of local influence just shows how much energy he had. By his late 20s, he was a college president in his area of birth. He was a state senator. And he was a very famous preacher in his area all at the same time. And his political attitudes of that time were uh, fiery. He, he, the Western Reserve of Ohio was the name of his, his neighborhood where he grew up, his region of Ohio. And it was the hotbed of abolitionism in America. It was 
historically known actually as having the highest concentrations of stops on the Underground Railroad as any other area of the United States. And so he's writing in his local influence position, I feel as though a great united effort should be made and that effort should have but one aim, and that should be the suppression of slavery in every newly acquired territory. And, and that inspires him to fight in the Civil War. He wants to be part of this crusading, liberating army in the South. And then after he joins Congress as the youngest member of Congress in 1863, he then becomes incredibly radical. And he's part of this generation of Republicans who want to not just rebuild the South, but actually tear its gentry down to the bare elements and then build it into a, a version of the North. And then you fast forward because, and you see this young, uh, aggressive kind of prodigy of public life start to realize that he starts to give into politics as being the art of the possible. And he starts to see this failure of reconstruction. He has to moderate his own politics. And suddenly he's not the youngest person in Congress anymore. He's actually one of, he's actually one of the longest tenured and he's the minority leader of the house in the late 1870s. And so he alone has seen all of the, or at least a lot of the policies he once fervently believed in fail. And he had been a part of that failure, but he'd really given into this idea that the progress he wanted to see had to be left to future generations to accomplish. And there's this great quote he writes partway through the 1870s after Klan violence has erupted in the South. And he writes, I feel my fast growing conviction strengthened that politicians and parties are in the main, but sticks and bubbles whirling along on the great current whose movement we may modify a little, but which we neither create nor control. And that worldview, combined with this friendliness that he had cultivated with all members of the political parties in Washington at that time, he, he was not resigned. He was optimistic for the future, but he knew that the America he wanted to see wouldn't be possible in his time. And he was willing, you might argue too willing, to defer the solution of those very tough issues to the next generation. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's easy to see how that can be relevant in modern political discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we see in numerous points in presidential history and American history. I know, you know, you see it in the early Republic after the revolution and you have all this, this fervor towards change. And then you get the constitution, the new government starts and mm. you have these folks who start to get into that political schema and they start to become a bit more moderate or conservative and things change. These, these fervent revolutionaries are yeah. now the establishment. Yes. And that's a natural progression of power. I think it's much easier to tear something down and to be this firebrand when you are outside the system. Yeah. Uh, there was something, so he, Garfield was a radical and there was this, and radicals famously were determined to ensure equal rights for, you know, all races in America. And but they, their, their view of the United States was that it was really the declaration of independence and not the constitution that should be seen as the foundational document of America. And there's, and of course uh, they were willing to be quite laissez-faire with the law when it came to accomplishing those. They, they were of that breed who came up with the policy decisions they wanted made and then tried and then looked at the law and see how the law could be fitted around 
what they wanted to accomplish. And Garfield was one of those, which is ironic because again, he became a Supreme Court lawyer <laughs> while while serving in Congress as one of these firebrands. And uh, this 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 critic of the radicals in the Lincoln administration, because Lincoln was not a radical whatsoever, wrote that uh, the great problem with radicals is that they are humanitarians and not constitutionalists. And I, I think we can see the relevance of that today. But again, Garfield managed that transition. He maybe alone of all the radicals held on to national political power. He saw the the twists and turns of those currents of public events he was talking about. And he wrote as radicals started getting whipped in the elections in the North. And he's writing about the Republican Party of that time of the post-Civil War. He wrote that the work of ending slavery developed a peculiar kind of talent, very efficient in its object. It was of the destructive, not the constructive kind. And so when he saw the tide go out, he became one of those constructive figures. He decided to maybe cool it down with the firebrand talk and instead get very get because he was, a, for lack of a better term, a tremendous nerd. He was very happy diving into census policy and fiscal policy and all these dry little details that ended up being foundational to the future course of America, but that very few other uh, congressmen and national politicians had the intellectual inclination or the patience for it. He was very happy in, you know, diving into the library of Congress. And there are a lot of anecdotes about him leaving debates and just going to study for hours on end in the library. Uh, he might've been, and we'll return to this later probably, but the most intellectual of presidents I think that we've ever had. So again, he managed that transition very well. Absolutely. Well, and, mm -hmm. and you mentioned, you know, his, intellectual acumen. And there was another character trait that you talked about with him. So you mentioned it numerous times in the biography about Garfield's affability and likability, even in, you know, really rough moments. You know, you highlight this one point, he's fist fighting with other canal men in his younger days. And you say, quote, he refused to hit a downed adversary. So what importance would you give this character trait in his rise in the political circles and ultimately to the presidency? I think it was absolutely crucial. I think it was maybe the most important reason that he got elected in the first place. And, and it, it was a defining character trait of his. He was kind of from his youth. You mentioned when he was this young strapping canal boy, he ran away from home from his mom to go work on the Ohio Canal, which gave him a very helpful blue collar bona fides when he ran for office later. As, as a side note, you know, they, they talked about Lincoln being the rail splitter and Garfield is the canalman. And so you learn, and this is a tip for readers, if they want to run for office, they should pick a blue collar job that has a, an iconic action and then they got to roll with it. Yeah. But yeah, so Garfield was on the canal and when he, and this was true also when he was in school, he was very competitive. He was very fierce, but as soon as he'd beaten somebody, he was pathologically afraid of that person having hurt feelings afterward. So he was this very strange combination of incredibly sharp, incredibly competitive, incredibly ambitious, but he was also, uh, obsessed with remaining on good terms with those that he had beaten in an academic field, in a social field, and even in a physical field here. And, and that applied to the way he ran his politics. He was the only person who, in an increasingly partisan age, as, the, as Reconstruction ground on, Democrats and Republicans got along less and less, but also Republicans became increasingly factionalized. And Garfield was the only one who was in every pretty much every single major ideological debate, whether it is suppressing 
Klan violence in the South or trying to institute civil service reform, which sounds like a dull topic, but I guarantee you the history of the American federal bureaucracy is a very fascinating and dare I say sexy historical subject. But Garfield was uh, somebody who was always obsessed with threading the line between the corrupt factions of his party and then the clean operators between the uh, extremists on various issues and then the moderates. He, he was somebody who these bosses would describe as a most lovely man to meet, but then also that the clean government reformers thought of as being an incredibly pleasant person. And he would write very often about this political style he had. Uh, he wrote, I never feel that to slap a man in the face is any real gain to the truth, which, you know, for somebody who was of such a sharp intellect and who was always looking for a practical policy solution to these issues that kept on coming up in his life, uh, he, he was always one to think about uh, a rational solution to the problem at hand and, and try to make things as let, as impersonal as possible with those people around him. He, he just... He was obsessed with not hurting feelings and the charity he extended to his political opponents was also wonderful. There's this anecdote that comes to mind after he was shot as president, this young Democrat congressman came forward and gave this story to the papers. And he writes about when he, back when he was a freshman and he was in, in Congress and he was assigned to debate Garfield on the Republican side on this policy issue. He was so afraid of the prospect of going against Garfield because Garfield had this reputation of being a fantastic orator. And he was this experienced congressional leader by that time that this Democratic congressman went behind closed doors to go meet with Garfield in private and to explain how nervous he was. So if you think about that for a second, that's like uh, that's like a freshman Republican going behind closed doors to have a heart to heart with Nancy Pelosi and to say, hey, I really don't want to debate you. I'm very scared of this. And so what, what, what Garfield did after this Democrat poured his heart out is Garfield shared with this man his script for the debate. And he said, these are the points I'm going to hit. This is how long this is going to take. And here are some opportunities where you might be able to come up with some rebuttal for me. And retelling this story later, this Democratic congressman says, and you can understand my anxiety and my love for that man who I think of as a brother. And then the Democrat goes on to explain, and I refuse to campaign against him when he became the presidential nominee. So he was just this militantly nice guy. And I'd say irrationally nice guy because in heated political debates, when the Republicans could score political points, he was always, you know, even as minority leader of the house, he was always somebody who would say, wait a minute, let's not press the advantage here. Let's give our enemies room to breathe. Let's make sure that there's, you know, that they have something to leave this table with. And that, that was, strange to me as a contemporary researcher that was strange to his peers at that time everybody or at least very many people on the republican side all very strangely said the same thing about him as though they met and decided what to insult him with frederick Douglass, ulysses grant they all said that he lacked moral backbone because you could never be sure of what garfield believed on an issue at any given time if you presented a strong argument to him and you you know pressed him into saying, look, I can't abide by your position here. He would shift his own. And that was very interesting to me. But it, but again, it ended up being why he was elected, because when the Republican candidates for the presidency in 1880 could not get a majority of their party support, because the Republican Party was so factionalized and so riven with internal strife, 
every the the the, the only person everybody liked was Garfield, and so they picked him to off the convention floor as their nominee, and he had a very interesting reaction, which we can probably go into later. But he made a very big show of not wanting it, whether he did or not. I think is very complicated, but he certainly had feelings of doom and those turned out to be very well-founded. And it's, it's interesting, especially that comparison to kind of the modern era. And that's something that, you know, folks talk about that citizens want their leaders to not be so partisan, but then when somebody does shift their viewpoints on a subject because they've heard an argument or for whatever reason, then they come up for criticism just like Garfield mm. did in his day. And it's interesting that we still have this debate within ourselves for our public leaders. Do we want somebody who never changes their opinion and mm. sticks to their guns? Or do we want somebody who can talk with people from different political backgrounds and ideologies and possibly shift or come up with, you know, that, dirty word in politics, sometimes compromise. You yes. Know, it's, it's really, really fascinating. I think that's a central point of his life. He was a, I, I keep on returning to the term and I wish I'd put this in the book, but it came to me after I wrote it, which is he was a pathologically reasonable person. He was obsessed with seeing ideological points, point of view, and then to a certain extent, accommodating it. He, he was a, slave even to the politics of pragmatism towards the end of his life. And what happens when you have a good natured person who is forever pragmatic and reasonable when they have political power? Well, they end up adopting some of the, the if, if they're amalgamating every position at the table, they're going to internalize some loathsome ones for lack of a better term. And that's what he got. But your, your broader point about what we want from our representatives, incredibly timely for this, uh, you know, this era we're in, but also for Garfield's time. It, it, and it cuts to this debate as to whether we want our representatives to represent our viewpoints on every single issue, or do we trust their judgment? Like, are we, are we picking them as this envoy to ourselves or are we, are we appointing them as this, this, this philosophical leader who can, be trusted to make wise decisions, even though they don't necessarily correlate with our own views or anything. There's a term for that. It escapes my mind, but Garfield was definitely the latter. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Absolutely. Mm. And... and you know, to that point, and, and we'll go a bit more into some aspects of his political life and career, you know, as we continue with this conversation. But one of the things that, and especially with presidents, but I think with political leaders in general, 
it's sometimes good to take a moment to look at some of the people who are close to them in that personal sphere, that, that family mm-hmm. life. And so I wanted to take a moment to talk about Garfield's relationship and marriage to Lucretia or Crete Garfield. Mm-hmm. And you describe in your work how their courtship was rather hot and cold at times. You know, they, they'd be in this good place and then all of a sudden everything would just go cold. And you write at one point, quote, Crete was the only person in Garfield's orbit who paid for his hyperactivity. The only obligation he felt comfortable dropping like a discarded juggling pin upon taking up the added burden of office. And so, Charlie, I was wondering if you would mind discussing their relationship, Crete's role in James's life and career, and how that changed over time. Mm. Yes, I'd say hot and cold and cold. To hot. It was probably very much then the narrative I'd say is cold to hot because uh, they, and I've heard other historians say the exact same thing about them. They had at the beginning of their marriage, perhaps the worst marriage uh, you could think of in presidential history. And by the end of their lives, they had one of the best. It was not smooth sailing whatsoever. Lucretia was just as brilliant as her husband but she was constrained by the conditions of her time to being this housewife. She was this, she was a, and uh, you know, the raiser of the children, the leader of the house, she read the classics and what initially attracted a very young James Garfield to her, they went to the same school in Ohio was her mind. She was this incredibly deep thinker who uh, even in later life, would read very widely on politics and would weigh in on her husband's decisions and became his closest confidant. But in early life, and this was kind of true for the rest of her experiences with other people, not James, she had this very cold, icy veneer that, 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 that covered a, a very rich, warm soul. And when you come across the young James Garfield, he is to go back a little bit, this, poor boy who came up even in the context of that time from a very rough background and who was on the up and up, who was just ascendant through all the institutions that existed in this part of America at this time. And he was incredibly ambitious and he was looking for somebody, you know, and this was in his late teens, early twenties, who could be trusted to be smart and brilliant enough to keep him entertained, but who could also be relied on to be this partner in life as he went on from one thing to the other. And so he finds Crete and they, they are intellectually perfectly matched on a personal level. They're both incredibly awkward. Garfield is always flitting off for one job or the other. He's preaching all around Ohio. He's going down to Columbus as a state Senator. He is teacher. He's becoming the president of this local college and he's basically for forgetting his wife at home and he's not coming home. And there was a period in the civil war actually, where he, he just become the youngest general in the civil war and he comes home and he has a note slipped into his hand by his wife. And it explains that of their X years of marriage, by that point, they'd only been together in each other's presence for a few weeks. And that difficult time had also been marked by an affair. He had cheated on his wife with a, a woman in DC. So these are not, as I'm sure the listeners can add up now, these are, this is not exactly a winning formula for marital bliss, but stubborn as she was, Crete hung on and 
her husband atoned and he went through a very difficult period of confronting himself with his own failures as a man, as a husband, as a father, because they'd had children by that point. And they'd, they'd even endured the loss of a child, their firstborn. And what happened then was a remarkable turning point. And she went and it went from being this weak, almost sometimes antagonistic relationship to a, a strong one. He, in later life, he would always use the same term to refer to Crete. He would always call her unstampedable around friends. And of course, that's a strange thing you'd hear from, imagine somebody saying that to you about their spouse. It implies that some stuff happened that would have stampeded other people. But Creed had hung around and she became this great asset to him and he just doted on her. He, and he wrote, I found this great note that he, I found a lot, their, their letters are just in later life, just full of richness and love and warmth. And he wrote this letter to her upon, to their farm in rural Ohio after he was coming back from the campaign trail. And he, and he writes, I'm paraphrasing, but he writes all roads, you know, they used to say that all roads led to Rome and he goes in my heart, all roads lead to Crete. Like she is, she was the center of his, his life and the center of his universe. And I don't know if that relationship would be possible today. Uh, you know, given the liberties now at last available to women, you know, back in that time, I, I, if different standards, social standards applied, I could very easily see Crete cutting bait, but she was built of this character to endure. And what resulted against the odds was an incredibly rich relationship. And then of course it ended in tragedy. His assassination devastated Crete, but in its aftermath, she became this guardian of his legacy. And in the work she did at their farm, she ended up actually arguably building through her own efforts, the first presidential library in American history. She collected his writings, she collected his works, and she she dedicated their farm in Mentor, Ohio. It still stands there today as a National Park Service site to being this temple of his legacy. And it's a wonderful place to visit. So I encourage you to do the same if you ever get the chance, Jerry. Absolutely. I would love to. We, I do interact with folks from the Garfield National Historic Site on social media quite often. They are very oh, active there. So I highly recommend folks following them on social media and going and checking out the site. And they've written great books too. Todd Arrington, he wrote The Last Lincoln Republican, which is, all, which is a very good history of the Garfield campaign of 1880. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because as I was reading your book, it just seemed like there was that point where you just feel Garfield just kind of taking pause and, and saying, Oh, maybe I do need to course correct here. You know, she, mm -hmm. she stuck with me through all of this. And after that, you start to see more letters between them that you get a sense of this, this great partnership and, and relationship and, and very rich and vibrant relationship mm -hmm. in their letters. And I found her writings a very interesting look in the difficulties of being an intellectual woman of that time. And she writes about being, you, you, she, she has this letter that she writes towards the end of his congressional career when he's minority leader of the house. And, he, and she writes, and again, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but she writes, yes, it's difficult to be a man. But to be a woman in this day and age with some access to enlightenment and intellectual capability, 
but to be struck struck or stuck in what she called like the grinding necessities of raising little barbarians children she says just awful and uh you get the you, you wonder what would have been possible if she'd lived in a more enlightened time but she yeah she was a remarkable mind and uh one of the great enigmas of his life i think is how she had the strength to stick around <laughs> in the early years and then and then it reaped rich reward absolutely absolutely and it it really speaks to and you get you get some of these couples like i'm thinking of john and abigail adams this this rich partnership towards the end but you know the beginning there were times of struggle and disappointment and separation and and it seems like there are some strong parallels there and and likewise you know abigail very rich mind like mm. lucretia and it's just it really is fascinating to think about if they had been born in a different time what their lives may have looked like yeah yeah and uh i think we're now starting to i think we're now in a period where where we might see not necessarily the end result of those hypotheticals, but we're, we might, you know, we've seen some interesting political power couples in our, in our, in our time now here today. Absolutely. So we're going to see how that pans out. Definitely. Well, and going back to kind of Garfield's ideology and political career. So the subtitle of your work, and, and we've mentioned it already from radical to unifier. And this this transition that he makes in his political career, in his ideology, and some of his viewpoints and approaches. And so through the course of the biography, you talk about Garfield's views on slavery and race relations, which, as you noted, were more complicated than has sometimes been portrayed in other works on him. Mm -hmm. Did you come away from your research with the impression that, like with other aspects of his political ideology, he shifted his ideological stance on matters related to Black Americans after the Civil War? And if so, how? I think he did. But I, th I think he did it very specifically in a way that related to practice rather than policy itself. From a young age, even before the Civil War, he was uh, in favor not just of abolition, but the equality of rights between black Americans and white Americans, which was way ahead, which was not exactly ahead of his time, but it was an incredibly uncommon viewpoint, even among people who were abolitionists or free soilers. The idea of being in favor of racial equality was seen as this, you know, out of line, uh, th th this, this very radical position for lack of a better term. And Again, he's in the Western Reserve, and so he's seeing runaway slaves flee through his part of Ohio and cross Lake Erie into Canada. So he's seeing this pipeline of, uh, of uh, you know, human chattel flee the system of oppression. And uh, current events uh, just radicalize him in that time. And even before the Civil War started or on its eve, he had this amazing foresight for how the conflict would go and what historical significance it would assume. He had, he had phenomenal foresight. It's almost as if he was reading a few pages ahead of the history books, but he's on the, he's on, this is the eve of the civil war. He writes, may it not be an economy of bloodshed to tell the South that disunion seals the doom of slavery. 
that if the South actually forms a government based on the monstrous injustice of human slavery, it will be a cane among the nations of the earth. So you, Cain among the nations of the earth, you're getting that religious, that, that preacher Garfield coming forward and believing, you know, this is the righteous cause. This is, this is not just the future of the union. This is God's will. This is the course of humanity to purge slavery and injustice from the United States. And in the aftermath of the civil war, having freed slaves himself personally, and then gone to Congress to be part of the passage of the 13th and uh, 13th amendment. And then, afterward the 14th and 15th after the civil war uh he he he's he's still this firebrand and he he says in a speech what is freedom is it the bare privilege of not being chained of being of not being bought or sold branded and scourged if this is all then freedom is a bitter mockery a cruel delusion and it may well be questioned whether slavery were not better so he, he's just perpetually unsatisfied he wants not just equality of rights. He also wants to redistribute Southern plantation land from the white landed gentry to slaves. And then as, and he also founds, by the way, the first department of education as a congressman in part to ensure that equality of rights translates in practice into access to those rights. But as, as political obstacles built up, as elections start being lost and as over the course of the decade that follows, there are these repeated flare-ups of political violence against Black Americans in the South. You see his will start to ebb, and you see that he starts becoming this, not this, not, I don't want to say voice of reason, because that's obviously a very loaded term, but he's, he's the radical who's looking at the election results, and who's looking at this infighting in the Republican Party, and who's seeing the seemingly impractical problem in the South of just federal power not working and constitutional limits being imposed on the old amendments by a Supreme Court, as you know, which was not an ally to the radicals in this situation. And he, he basically sees the writing on the wall. He retains his ideology. He believes every single thing that he once, you know, ardently argued as a policy solution. But he starts to except that politically this is not viable, that the South, you know, was on the downswing, that the Republican party was losing there. And not only was it losing there as more Democrats were enfranchised again, as reconstruction continued, but the Republicans were also losing in the North. They were getting more bitter and torn over new policy problems to worry about. And so there was this period during uh, Andrew Johnson's impeachment, yet another thing that Garfield had a frontline view to. And he writes, well, I'm trying to be a radical and not a fool. <laughs> so, so you, and, and I, I, I don't want to, I, I hate dwelling into modern politics, but that plucks a few strings in our mind when we think about what we're going through today. And uh, he starts becoming willing to make limited policy uh, solutions on the, on the, on these old causes again, but it's, it's based purely on political practice. You know, he writes as president elect, this is on the verge of his own, when he comes into power and he might have some possibility to reverse this trend as his inaugural address, by the way, is written to sound like it will. But he writes regarding the Southern problem, time is the only healer with justice and wisdom at work. And he was friendly with black Americans. He gave them a lot of jobs in his administration. He was, he even, I found this uh, this, this was one of the discoveries that I hadn't found in the other Garfield biographies of ages past. 
as president, he was he, he insisted on participating in a graduation ceremony at Howard University in D.C., you know, the historically black college. And he gave the graduates their diplomas and he, he said very encouraging things. Education had been this liberating force for his own hardship in life. And he thought that that would be the solution for African-Americans. And this is not to say that he was a paragon of you know, he would not fit in with modern views because he built his house in D.C. in a neighborhood exclusively because he, he it had less black foot traffic. And he wrote he didn't want black people to be his neighbors. Uh, and then there are also other races. He had views on uh, Native Americans that were at best patronizing. And when it came to Chinese immigration from the West, that's that's, I think, a, a part of American immigration history that a lot of people have a blind spot on. He was uh, unwilling to wade in on behalf of uh, that type of American, too, when that started becoming a political touchstone. So he was a pioneering progressive on these issues. And he was, but his participation in the gains of that era and his role as a sometimes very passive witness to the backsliding of those rights, I think that's very timely. And he ended up, by the way, being, I don't want to say right, because the, the, the cause is not over. But with justice and wisdom at work, time has created a lot, has, has created a lot of opportunities for the resolution of old problems on these issues in America. And I, I just, his writing on these issues is just very compelling. It's very compassionate. And it's, it, it just gives a whole new dimension to the way I think Americans seem to think of our past leaders. We, sent, we, we tend to look at all of these old white men and we think they didn't really care very much about these issues and that they had a, uh, you know, a, a wall between themselves and the experiences of Americans who didn't look like them. Garfield came the closest to breaking through with that. He was this crusading general in the South. He had joined the Civil War in great part because he wanted to be this liberating figure. He wanted to go south and storm the plantations and free slaves. And he ended up leaving the army because he felt too restricted and not being able to do that. He thought he could, you know, he had his ambition at play as well, but he thought in Congress, he could be a bigger part of solving those problems. And then throughout the course of his life, there's this attempt to solve these issues and this willingness to be on the right side of history. And this, again, he saw this as a religious cause in great part. But he couldn't fight for the America that he wanted to see. And he, and because he thought that a lot of these issues couldn't be won in his time, he often didn't try. And so that's, it's this Ouroboros that I think reflects a lot on age-old political dynamics in America. Well, and it, it gets to, and, you know, you had discussed this earlier about kind of him going from this radical, let's go in, let's do everything right now and kind of realizing, okay, well, if, if we're really going to do things, it's got to be a long-term strategy. We've got to go for the long game. I've got to stay in power. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's certainly room to criticize and, and some of the decisions that were made and also, you know, putting him in the context of his time and some of the other overarching views of that time in general in white society and white yeah. upper class society. It's interesting. He, he does come across as 
different. And there are these points that, you know, are valid for criticism and for saying, okay, well, here he's doing something different. He's, mm -hmm. he's trying to move the needle and also realizing how long it's going to take to do that. And, and to your point, we're still today trying to move that needle. Mm -hmm. We are. I th you know, everybody asks that question, I think, of a biographer. What would you do if you had a meal with this person? And what would that be like? I don't think I would want to have a meal with him. As a matter of fact, what I'd like to do, since he was spent a lot of his life in D.C., I, I'd argue probably a majority of his professional life. And I live in the D.C. area. I would just like to take him around. I would just like to walk around. I think that would be, I, I'd walk him through all of our history. He was, you know, again, he was also an incredible intellect. He was a mathematician. He was a lawyer. He was a writer. Uh, his diary for the year of 1878 opened with a, a new Shakespeare quote for every single day. So I think just touring him down the National Mall and I'd just be like, well, this is what we've accomplished. This is what we've done. I think it would be very interesting to hear his response and to just show him the wonders and tragedies and all of the complexities of our time. I th I th and, I, and I'd like to hear what he'd say about that. Absolutely. Um, I think that would be a real blast. But that consider that wish fulfillment from, <laughs> from, 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 a, from a historian. That sounds like an amazing day, an amazing experience. So <laughs> sign mm -hmm. me up for that tour. <laughs> well, we, you know where we would end? I would, I would, yeah, I would end, we would walk up, we would go to the Capitol, and I'd stand in front of the statue of him. That's in the southwest corner of the Capitol. And I'd say, and here you are, you know, you're, you're, you're right in the heartbeat of it all. People walk by you every day, but this is your monument. I think that'd be very fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and you spoke to this earlier. And so I want to, to make sure to kind of bring us back to this, that this idea of education and its importance in his life and, and in his trying to move things forward in the future. So you described at one point Garfield's successful efforts in pushing through Congress plans for a Department of Education, but you also mentioned, quote, Garfield's prize would be heaps more work that would bury him semi-regularly throughout the rest of his political life. The wing of government that he had founded was destined to sputter along like a leaky ship, hamstrung by poor command from within and congressional attacks from without. So, Charlie, would you mind speaking to Garfield's efforts on behalf of education during his career and how you see this fitting into his larger legacy? Yes, yes. I So education was foundational to his own rise. It was the force that got him out of the fields of rural Ohio. It was what had brought him to this point of authority over his, you know, in his region of the, the state. And ended up actually being the launch pad for his political career because he was this uh, college president who, who also preached and who everybody liked and who was very friendly with all of his kids. And he always thought of education as being so important to him. And as he went on in later life, whenever he was confronted with, uh, you know, it, whenever the U.S. seemed to come ac across a social issue, he always had this feeling that education was this panacea that somehow it was the solution of all things. So in reconstruction, he was, he was approached by an educator who had this idea for a federal department of education. That would be a power that would help the States create their own educational systems and 
you know, extend it to more of their citizens. Not, not in the way that we think of the Department of Education today. This was a much different beast. But Garfield heard that idea and he just took it and ran away with it. And he ended up successfully founding the, uh, the first Department of Education in the United States as a congressman. And he viewed it as this crucial policy solution in a very, very important time of flux in American society. Because this is, this is a period where not only are there all of a sudden millions of new American citizens in the South, but also there are millions of new American citizens arriving in the Northeast in New York from Europe. There, there's this immigration wave happening across the Atlantic as you know the South is also going through this stuff. That's what ended up defining the Gilded Age and the industrialization of America. So Garfield was thinking, this is the perfect time to give all of our citizens the, the, the benefits of education that I was so lucky to have and that I, that, that he argued would be the wisest expenditure of public funds the U.S. could ever hope for, that it would pay dividends in future. And so he wrote, shall we commit the fatal mistake of building up free states without first expelling the darkness in which slavery has shrouded their people? Shall we enlarge the boundaries of citizenship and make no provision to increase the intelligence of the citizen? So he, he basically argued that this was this great policy idea. But as it, it, he had to spend a lot of political capital to get this through. He drew on a lot of friendships that he, he asked a lot of friends and they later held it against him for dragging them into this mess. Because the, the, the institution he created was not very well run. And it was essentially this repository of public educational data reported by all of the states. And the idea was that this data would give Congress guidance on how Americans are doing in their schooling and what states have good educational systems and which ones don't and how to inform policy changes based on this reporting structure. The people picked to run this thing were not very good at their jobs. And as uh, public, as we, as they, as the country entered this period of retrenchment, of reductions in spending in, in the 1870s, the, the first place everybody looked was this little rinky-dink weird thing that Garfield had created that was designed to be this federal authority on education, which people thought of as being this great intrusion into states' rights anyway. And it was, so it was subject to fiscal attacks. It was also subject to, honestly, racial attacks because, and there are these quotes that I include in the book, but Democrats argued that this was that the Department of Education existed as a way for Republicans to buy the votes of black Americans. And so you hear a lot. And, and so some of that stuff is very grim to read about. And these attacks worked. Uh, Garfield's creation lost funding. It went from being a department back to a bureau of education. He saw that over the course of his life and he was very saddened by it. But as he gathered power, as he became chairman of the appropriations committee and then you know, minority leader of the house, he had enough political clout to keep it alive. But it, it was another example of him really believing in policy decisions that would pay off in future, so long as Americans stuck to it. And he was still optimistic for that, but he regretted the political means that he had gone through. I think I would like to meet somebody at the Department of Education today and talk to them about getting a Garfield statue put up because he was... They don't know that. Many people don't know that he was the creator of this thing, at least its original iteration. But I think they should. And his motivations, I think, again, strike a very powerful chord. Well, and, and to your point, it's at that point in thinking of where in American history 
he was and that this was something that he pushed for. It was so far ahead of where most everyone else was and everybody else wasn't doing like Garfield. And anytime he came up on a new issue, he would rush to the library, gather every book that he could on it, dive into the research and try and understand it. Everybody else wasn't doing that. And so, like you said, this weird office over here that nobody knows what it is, except that Mm. money's going into it. And what are we really getting out of it? It's just, it's really, it speaks to just how far ahead of his time in some respects he was. Yes. Yes. And I think that instinct of other people going, what is that department of the federal government doing? Money comes in. I don't see what happens. Uh, You know, as as a resident of DC, people are still saying that today. (laughs) <laughs> in exactly. Ways. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but he was a fa- he was he was the you know the one of the one of the grandparents of the modern federal education system, and I think that's it's another one of those things where you're like, how has no one really heard very much of this man before? It, it's interesting. Well, and it's interesting because you were you were talking about the political capital that he expended in this effort, and you know. This is in the context of the Gilded Age and the big bosses and the political machines. And with Garfield, it was it was a bit different. In this time of corruption prevalent in political circles, you note that due to his serving as representative from the Western Reserve, quote, Garfield had no machine and relied on no bosses to preserve his power. The Reserve's pastured expanse lacked enough jobs or people to sustain such operations. So would you mind sharing with the audience how you interpret Garfield's ability to successfully navigate Gilded Age American politics without a political machine of his own to achieve goals that some of these viewed as effective leading politicians of the time, like James G. Blaine and Roscoe Conkling, were never able to attain? You know, he he made it to Mm. the presidency. Blaine would have loved to. I think Conkling would have loved that power. But they weren't able to make it despite the political machines that they built and Garfield was. So what do you think helped him to successfully navigate there? I think that's a very good question. And I think before we get into the weeds on it, it, you know, the context of what a political machine was would be very interesting. So back in this time and before that time in American history, the government really lacked a professional federal bureaucracy. Most public employees owed their employment not to some department or some civil service exam that they took. Instead, it was based pretty much on the recommendation of a local congressman or senator. So your tax man, your post office worker, your sheriff often, uh, you know, these were these were not civil servants as we understand them today. They were not this apolitical, oh, let me take your, you know, 10X form or whatever and put that in the computer. They were political cronies, basically, very often. And so as soon as you give a senator or a congressman that kind of power, it's not going to be long before you start to see some very shady activities start to take place. And so what the machines of this Gilded Age period were, were these organized rings of politicians who would win elections, often through shady means, and they would use their office as kind of a cash register for their own selves, for their followers, and for uh, the political machines themselves. So it would create kind of this almost mafioso type organization where 
you know, you win an election and all of these, these guys who backed you, they become first post office worker out in, you know, Fairfax County. And they're able to take some of the funds of the post office and put it in their own pockets as they're doing their job. And so it creates these rings that then get called machines, which is a delightfully industrial term for this industrial period. And the people who oversee the operations of these machines are the bosses. And the bosses are bosses are 50% politician or uh, and 50% crime boss. And so they're, they have opinions on public policy and they try to influence public policy, but they're also trying to line their own pockets and line the pockets of their followers. And when they need to win an election, they just round up the boys and they say, Hey, you go get this neighborhood, round up all the men and make sure they vote right. And you know, that's what happened. So over the Gilded Age, these things exploded because in part, the federal government got so big. The size of the federal government out of the Civil War was massive. It was the biggest employer in the United States. And so it created just the perfect conditions for machine politics. It kicked off this counter reaction of reform. People started demanding from a grassroots level, clean government. And it, it, it set up this perfect period of infighting. Garfield did not have a machine. He did not belong to a machine. But what he did have, and this is why he was able to win out, he had enough appointment power that he could still give friends of his good jobs. He was not afraid of using this patronage system to his own benefit. But intellectually, he would tell himself that he sympathized with the reformers. And so he would vote along with the reform faction of his party a lot. But he would also, in classic Garfield style, he would not alienate the bosses. He would, they would argue to him that being, having a political machine is a matter of good political practice. The Democrats have their own machines. We need to compete. And that worked with Garfield. You know, he, so reformers would come after him and he would say, yes, I'm on your side, but, and he would say, it is the business of statesmanship to wield the political forces so as not to destroy the end to be gained. So he would say, yeah, you know, I, I see uh, there's a need for federal civil service. We need codes of conduct. It's outrageous that these cronies are stealing public money and getting away with it. But, you know, we, we need to be able to accomplish things. And sometimes when you need to accomplish a policy goal, if you're able to, if, if your opponent is purely motivated by money and it's a matter of paying them off and giving them the right job, that helps the wheels turn. So he, he, again, that pragmatic side of him gave in. And so the reason he was able to win really was because he was able to play all sides. He was not a pure machinist. He did not have a machine, but he also saw the use of patronage and he was able to keep reformers somewhat happy. And he wouldn't talk down to any of these people. One of the things that was written about him after he captured the nomination was that he, his nomination, quote, will produce a perfect unison in the Republican Party because he has helped everybody when asked and antagonized none. So whenever machinists or reformers would come to him, he would say, I'll do what I can to help you. I'm not one of you, but I'm one on your side. And so the reason, you know, we're not even at the presidency yet. That's how rich this life is. So when the presidency comes up for grabs, Garfield is afraid of being the person thrown into this role and he's not even running. But the Republican Party by that period is so divided between the men you mentioned, James Blaine, Roscoe Conklin. And then the reformers who hate both of these men and uh, that they're not able to at the convention to pick a nominee all fall into line behind somebody. And so they end up picking Garfield off the uh, off the floor of the convention because he had the fortune slash misfortune to have 
been the unifying figure, not just in his career, but also at the convention. He had this awful habit, a somewhat suspicious one, of always being in the right place at the right time, saying the right thing to keep him in everybody's mind as somebody who they could all follow behind. And I'm not going to go too much into his own feelings about the presidency. He was very afraid of it. And he kind of had a sense that it would not be where political success lay. And he was right about that. But he serendipitously fell into the most powerful position on the continent. And all of a sudden, his problem set changed dramatically. It was easy to be the kind, friendly, soft, unifying figure when you're not the one at the head of the ticket. But as soon as you are, all of a sudden, you're dancing on the heads of snakes. And you have to res- you have to manage all of these different factions in the Republican Party, and you need to accomplish policy goals. And it's not as easy to be this moderate figure anymore. As a side note, the factions that these Republicans named themselves after are great. Like the you know, we think that today, like our politics is colorful. The the Republican Party of 1880 was awesome because you had in one corner, and I'm describing it like a boxing match. You had you had the stalwarts. The Stalwarts were led by Roscoe Conkling, and they were in love with machine politics. They were the most corrupt faction of the Republican Party, and they loved Ulysses Grant, and they wanted to put Ulysses Grant back in the White House for a third term because they liked his policies, but they also liked how easy he made it to steal public money. They thought that he wouldn't be a very good policeman, and they were right to think that way. And then in the other corner, you have the very vividly named half-breeds, led by James Blaine, who was... Just a remarkable, I, I, I argue that he's the first American politician to really not care much about policy at all and who cared pretty much exclusively about power and who ran purely on charisma. They called him the magnetic man because he was such an attractive figure. But as I write in the book, magnets repel as they do attract and anybody who did not like his charisma hated him. And so you, there was no moderate position on James Blaine. And uh, they were called the half-breeds because the Stowarts viewed them as being not real Republicans. And that, that again, that, that should sound familiar. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> that's, very, uh, very, very familiar to people in the 21st century. <laughs> very familiar. But it's just a one. So for such a, for a period that is lost in historical grayscale, it's so colorful when you get into the weeds of it. And it's just nice to be able to draw these great American politicians out of relative anonymity and cast them a light where readers can be like, oh, my gosh, like what a what a peacock of a congressman. Like what what these these crime bosses who were also politicians and who just embraced these wonderful personalities. It's just great to write about and I hope to read about as well. Absolutely. I I have no doubt that listeners will enjoy getting immersed in the Gilded Age politics. There's just so much going on, so many fascinating characters, so many fascinating figures. And then you've got Garfield, who, you know, is mixing with them, but is very different. And you do get the sense that, and and it's understandable, the nature of the presidency versus the nature of being a congressional leader in Congress, you've got hundreds of people that you're trying to work with and who are ultimately part of the decision-making process versus the president who you know where the decision is coming from. It's the president is choosing to do something or not do something. And, and you see that and you illustrate that in your book, you know, once he becomes president, trying to 
appease Conkling, but realizing at a certain point, something has to give. He's got to assert his own authority. Otherwise, the presidency is going to go off the rails very quickly. And, and yeah, you, you illustrate how Garfield struggled with that. Yep. And they, and they, the, the, the fight that broke out, which, and this is what's so ironic is this position that Garfield had, had really not coveted, had been afraid of the presidency and had ended up being his end. And it was because of his attempt to lead as he had in the past of being this peacemaker in the Republican party. He couldn't do it at the end of the day. And it ended up spiraling out of control into this partisan intra-partisan warfare, you know, within the Republican party and the rhetoric and the events got so heated that somebody shot Garfield. And there's something terribly ironic about that, I think. And uh, it ended up being this quietly foundational period in American history, uh, as quiet as an assassination can get, because Garfield's triumph over Conkling established the, the primacy of the presidency over these Senate bosses, these machinists. And that, that had resounding effects for the age. And then the assassination itself, you know, the course of American history was changed. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And bringing us to Garfield and to this, this legacy of him. So in the course of your research, what was the most surprising insight that you came away with about Garfield and how did it change your impression of Garfield for better or worse? I, th I thought he was this. So one thing that did strike me throughout, throughout this whole book in the research process for it was just how prophetic he was. He could, he had this knack, not just for how the events of his time would play out, but also generally how American history would go in many senses of the term. I've mentioned this before, but ahead of the civil war, when the union was telling itself that it was fighting not for slavery, because that was politically dubious, uh, that, that would have been bad practice by Lincoln to do so. It was fighting for the sovereignty of the union. Garfield was saying, no, this, this war is going to be about freedom versus slavery. That's how it will be remembered. That's actually what he writes. This war will soon assume the shape of slavery and freedom. The world will so understand it. Also, at the same time, people were saying the Civil War was going to be over in months. All it would take, and you're, you're a son of the South, I'm a son of the South. People were saying back then that the South would be crushed. As soon as one Union division moved down towards Richmond, this whole thing would be over. But Garfield said, no, it was going to be an incredibly sanguinary, long conflict. You know, he said, he says, I, I can see no possible end to the war until the South is subjugated. So then this is a young man, a leading politician of Ohio, and who knew how important this thing was going to be. And that's one of the reasons he directed himself into fighting in it is because he, he, he both believed in the cause and he knew how important it would be to participate because that would be very helpful to his political career. And then you know, uh, this is him campaigning during the civil war in the South and he's in Alabama and he's writing home and he writes, it seems to me, and this is based on what he's seeing around him in the South, that the successful ending of the war is the smaller of the two tasks imposed upon the government. There will spring out of this war, a swath of new questions and new dangers. The settlement of these will be of even more vital importance than the ending of the war. So he knew reconstruction was not going to be a rollover. He knew that it's that that when the winning the war is fine, winning the peace is far more important. And he ended up being part of the political coalition that 
kind of didn't really win that piece. Uh, and he's one of the people who saw that over the, you know, the only people who saw the full course of it over the decade that followed. And, and that's not even withstanding what he says about just the broader course of the country. He knew the importance of education to public prosperity and peace and, uh, you know, attainment. He also had a sense for how the, the, the U.S. would evolve and eventually come to terms with its diversity and how that would eventually come about. And so I was always struck by how sage he was on the, the dynamics and really the nature of America. This man meditated so deeply on our identity as a country. It was really a pleasure to read his diary and to get to grips and his notes and he was just a remarkable witness to his times and an incredibly eloquent speaker and writer. He, he had no, I, I was thrilled to have no shortage of research material. And throughout the writing of this, this story, I kept on thanking my lucky stars that, you know, no one had tried to do this book before really, or, you know, in our time. Another thing that surprised me, and this is far less important and I'm not going to dwell on it. He was very good looking. Uh, that surprised I. It surprised me his physical qualities that people kept on mentioning. His ice blue eyes. You can see that on the cover of the book. My publisher was very smart in how they selected that. Everybody talked about his eyes. Everybody talked about his height, and especially everybody talked about his head. That was very strange. That the 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 because he was obviously he had receding hairline. But his build, his size, his eyes, and his head were things that people continually emphasize and apparently were great wonders for women. You know, he was a Lothario when he was younger. And uh, even today, I've heard with my own ears, female historians just, just lose their minds over his <laughs> eyes and what that meant. And it was great because uh, there's a speech Frederick Douglass gave during the 1880 election. And he's rallying a, a bunch of black voters in New York because New York was a critical swing state. And he is describing how Garfield is this, you know, man of the earth who was, who fought for, you know, black rights throughout his career and who knows our struggle because he also had come from a very humble background. And at the, at the apex of the speech, Frederick Douglass says, you know, and you must vote for him, you know, fellow black men that, you know, that three-story headed man, James Garfield. And I was like, three-story headed. Like, come on. Like, it's, like, it's like the fish story and the fish keeps getting larger every time somebody yeah, returns and, and, to it. And, and my publisher was surprised. My editor, Bob Bender at Simon & Schuster, he wrote me at one time and he said, I finally got a look at him. He's not the elephant man. I don't understand why everybody <laughs> I hope Bob doesn't mind me saying that, but, that, but, but he was like, you know, it's strange that that was the physical characteristic that everybody settled on, but it reflects also this nature of the, you know, this is a presidential podcast. And so your listeners will know this having a, having a distinctive physical trait, very politically helpful for a president, you know, having something people can caricature, it gives people to hang a shingle on. And Absolutely. So that really surprised me. Absolutely. And, and it, it is fascinating, you know, you get those distinctive features and there's a reason why so many presidents are taller than the average person at the time. Mm. It's just, it's really fascinating how, how that appearance does play into presidential politics and rise to prominence and things like that. So, yeah. 
I think I think going back to our very first one, George Washington was gigantic exactly. <laughs> by, by the standards of his time. Uh, yeah, so funny, funny thing. I, you know, you wonder what the equivalent height would be these days. Probably seven foot two or something like that. <laughs> Gotta be. <laughs> yeah, classic. <laughs> well, and and Charlie, after this monumental work on the 20th U.S. president and just this fascinating time in our in our political history and our history as a nation. As we wrap up our conversation, would you mind sharing with the audience where your research interests are leading you and what projects you're working on now? Yes, yes, absolutely. I can't be too specific, unfortunately, but uh, every biographer falls into a genre. And the, 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 the best ones tend to do so. I, for example, Robert Caro, he's all about the application of power. Walter Isaacson is another example of somebody who found innovators, people who are pushing the creative envelope on various things. And that's taken him to Leonardo da Vinci and Steve Jobs. And he's a friend and his work is fantastic. I was talking to a mentor of mine recently and I was explaining my idea for my, for, for my next project that I'm working on now. And he goes, I think, I think you found your genre and it's about people who keep government functioning in arduous times who resist, you know, the, the waves and the gales of current events and partisanship just to try to keep the great American machine churning. Garfield, I think is the first half of that story, at least as I've written about it, because it's about somebody who starts as this leading progressive who then has to navigate the eddies of one of the most difficult times in American history, the post-Civil War. Uh, my The next one I'm working on is actually kind of about the opposite. It's about somebody who, as they accumulate power, becomes more idealistic and starts using that power to inflict change. And it centers not on the presidency, actually. And it, it centers on the Senate. It's, it's about a Senate baron. And uh, it's set in the 20th century. So I, I see this as the natural flip side to the Garfield story. And uh, it's it's been boatloads of fun so far. Nice. Nice. Well, once you're able to talk more about details and you're getting closer to publication, I hope that you will return to presidencies and share more because it, it already sounds fascinating. And I have no doubt having read this book that it is going to be an amazing work. And just, I greatly appreciated this read. And I know that our listeners will as well, because for, if you're a listener of presidencies, you know, you obviously like me love the details, love mm -hmm being able to understand the individuals as well as the circumstances, as well as how it all fits into a larger schema. And that's what you get from your work, Charlie. And so thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for writing this book and diving into Garfield's time. Like you said, it, it is fascinating that it, that somebody hasn't done this before I'm so glad that you took up this project and that you did it this well. So thank you so much. It's all worth it to be here and to speak with you. <laughs> so I really appreciate it, Jerry. You know, it, it is, I, I do really appreciate it. And it's just great to talk about these things. Thank you for an excellent interview. And thank you for this podcast. You know, I love listening myself.
<laughs> well, I'm glad to have you in our our listenership. It's it's uh, amazing, you know, and, and you know from your work, just it's amazing to dive in and really get beyond just the the names and dates and the the marble figures and really understand the people that mm. really made this history. So it's more important than ever, I think. I, I, and I think what your work does so well is you diversify the presidential pantheon for the American public. And that's something that's long overdue and so badly needed and incredibly timely. Uh, you know, I, I, I think if we really appreciate the full scope, it, I mean, this is not news to you, but no country romanticizes its head of state. Like America, we see our, we deify these men because they have been men so far. I think that's going to change soon. But, uh, there is the amount of poetic and historical significance we invest in these lives. You're telling, you're telling the full story of America and I I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, the book is president Garfield from radical to unifier. And so be on the lookout for it. I will post more information on my social media around the release of this episode. It is coming to the bookshelves on July 4th, Listeners of presidencies, we know that's a big day. Anybody in America, you know that day. (laughs) So be on the lookout. Go ahead. Um, This will come out a couple of days prior to the book release. So once you're done with this episode, go and pre-order it. If you're listening to it after July 4th, go ahead and order it. It is an amazing read. And believe me, you want this one on your bookshelf. So Charlie, (laughs) thank you so much again. Oh, thank you, Jerry. This has been great. Thank you so much again to Charlie for graciously sharing his time and knowledge with us. To learn more, and believe me, there is so much more to learn about Garfield and his times, be sure to pick up the biography, President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier, by C.W. Goodyear, wherever you get your books. It is truly a fascinating read that I can't recommend enough. I'll have links with more information on the website, which is Presidency's podcast, all one word, dot com. If you would like to reach out with any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at Presidency's podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me and reach out on social media. I'm available on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post as Presidency's, on Twitter at Presidency's 89, and on Instagram at Presidency's podcast. That's right, all one word. Last, but certainly not least. I thank you all for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Allison Holland host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.